If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 2, verses 21 through 40. Luke 2, 21 through 40. Well, uh, if I didn't get a chance to greet you yet, uh, Happy New Year, uh, or Happy End of the Year, and Happy New Year to all of you. Uh, this is the last Sunday of the year, so, um, you know, it's kind of funny. When I was a young man, uh, the end of the year was a pretty happy time. Uh, I'd be thinking about, where's the party? Where's the, you know, where's the club I'm going to, uh, I mean, what uh, fellowship I'm going to go attend? I mean, uh, um, what... You know, which friends I'm going to get together, what games we're going to play, what, what are we going to eat and snack on, which, which pastor's house we're going to hang out at all night long until midnight strikes, you know, things like that. Um, but as I've gotten older, uh, no, not that stuff anymore. And it's less of that. I, I want to stay home. I, I want to be at home. I don't want to be out there on the roads. Um, but in the same way, there's kind of a change in how I view, not just what I do, but how I view these the transition of years. And I think it's because... As each year comes to an end, and as God gives us wisdom, we start reflecting upon what God has done in our lives. What God has accomplished in the year that he's given us, that he's given in the past year, and and we think about what's coming up in the next year. And when you get to the middle of your life, you start realizing that, you know, there are more years behind than ahead now. There are many years which I've lived, which maybe... As I reflect, I, I did not use to the glory of God as I, as I could have or would have liked to or wanted to. There are desires, plans that have fallen by the wayside. Um, there are, and uh, and there's, uh, there's oftentimes just a feeling of, of a little more sorrow because, well, truth be told, we, we see loved ones uh, pass on too. And uh, the years where we normally would spend with loved ones where there's less and less of them. Uh, of course, there you know you have families and you have new family members and such, but there's a there's a bit more sorrow. There's something, and I, I almost think I always think of it as basically as a sense of or more sense of mortality. I think about it as like, well, as the new year comes to an end, I, I'm basically one year closer to meeting my savior. And that's you know I say it in a sense where it somewhat could be morbid, but there's also a joy in that. Each day, each month, each year that passes is a year that we're closer to the number, you know, God's ordained the number of our days, and I'm going to see him in his, in his perfect timing. But there's something about sensing that I will die, and maybe for you as well, I think for most people, the sense of mortality, that sobers us. But as Christians, the sobering does not lead to distress or despair, because ultimately what we think about is the most important thing we have. We think about Jesus, don't we? We think about how I have Jesus. And though death is maybe approaching, the year is another year has ended, I have Jesus still. I think about the past year and there maybe it wasn't as good as I had hoped it to be. Maybe the plans I had made had fallen through. But I reflect and I remember I still have Jesus. The gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ is a comfort as the years pass by. As the days of our life draw closer to an end. And we start holding on to Jesus a little more tightly. We treasure him 
a little more greatly. But it is also what happens as we start thinking about Jesus is that we start wanting to make sure we start we can we can begin to doubt even or question or we want to make sure that what we believe about Jesus is actually true. We want to have the assurance that what I believe about Jesus, that he is my Savior and Lord, and that he died on the cross for my sins, and that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, that because I believed in him, I know that when I die, I will not really die, but I will continue to live because I will be with my Savior in heaven. How do I know for certain that this is all true? Because it would be a sad thing if it wasn't true. It's inadequate if it's just sentiment, but not true, then we are much to be pitied. But we know it is all true. We, our faith in Christ is assured. How? Not because uh, we got some feeling, not because I saw something, some, some vision. Not because uh, I heard it from somebody I respected that this is all true. But we believe and we find assurance in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the Bible tells us so. Because God tells it to us. Brothers and sisters, whatever your faith is, your faith must be based upon what the word of God says. Not what others say, but what God says in his word. This book provides assurance for you and me as we come to an end of another year, as we look to another year, but as we realize that more and more as the years pass on, that what we really need, what we need, what we need more of, most of all in our life is Jesus. That we want to make sure that everything about what we hold to Jesus is true. And we get that assurance from God's word. And as we've been studying the gospel of Luke, this gospel has been written for that very purpose. Remember Luke chapter 1, verse 4, about the purpose of Luke, which he wrote these details, this detailed historical record of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ so that he would give assurance of the truth that the readers, Theophilus in particular, but all the readers of this gospel, have been taught in their lives. And among the assurances that Luke's gospel gives is the assurance that Jesus is the Lord's salvation. Jesus is God's provision of salvation. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the plans and the promises of God to save a people for his name. Up to this point in the gospel, Luke's gospel, we've been, we've been seeing this fleshed out. We've seen the significance of his birth has been announced by an angel to some shepherds. And these shepherds praise God for them to their credit, what they heard and what they saw. They went out and they testified to everyone whom they could find in Bethlehem or anyone who came along their path. But, you know, these are shepherds. These were not the most reputable of religious authorities. They're not in the who's who of religious leaders in Israel. What would they know of the Messiah's birth? They could talk all they want about what they saw in that little baby, what they thought they saw in the fields. Any respectable religious leader would have probably said, no, no, that's, that's, they, they probably drank something. But the testimony of the significance of the birth of Jesus is not done in Luke's gospel. In today's passage, Luke records for us further testimony of the significance of Jesus' birth. It's not just a testimony from angels. It's not just a testimony from some shepherds. We're going to see today it's two more testimonies 
of who Jesus is, the significance of his birth. This text continues what's known as the infancy narratives of Jesus, but it particularly describes for us the presentation of Jesus as he is dedicated in the temple of Jerusalem. There are so many themes in this passage. It's a pretty lengthy passage. We'll read it as we go along. But the overarching theme of this passage is this, that it's the affirmation that Jesus is the Lord's salvation. Jesus is the Lord's salvation. That is, Jesus is the Lord's provision or the, of salvation. He is the fulfillment of his plans and promises of salvation. The dedication of Jesus at the, at the temple here, as we study this passage, will tell us three things, reveal to us three things about him. And so we look at these three truths about Jesus, the Lord's salvation, as we look at this, this dedication. What it says is it's going to try for us how he was dedicated at the temple. Um, but what it means, who it tells us who Jesus is. All right, so let's look at point number one that we look at and we find in verse 21 to 24 is this. The first truth that we learn in this narrative is that Jesus came to fulfill the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. That is the law of Moses. Now, we know that Jesus came in fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Luke will talk about that when he gets to Luke 24. He talks about the, on the road to Emmaus, etc. Jesus came in fulfillment of the law and the prophets. But he also came to fulfill the law, to obey and the law to observe the law. In these verses that establish for us the setting here, we see how Jesus, even as an infant, even as a baby, starts as begun to fulfill the law of Moses. In these verses, we see explicit references to three separate ceremonies that Jesus' parents observe. You know, in our culture, when you have a baby, there's certain ceremonies that we observe, right? Well, they may not be religious ceremonies, but we'll have them. We, you know, we'll throw a, a red egg ginger party. We may throw a 100-day party uh, for them. We might throw, send out announcements and tell about everybody in the world about, you know, all the, the vital statistics of our little child. These are our, the ceremonies. We'll have a, uh, even nowadays, before the child's born, we have a, a, a gender reveal party. All, you know, all sorts of ceremonies, right? Well, in... The Jew, under the Old Testament law, there were three very specific ceremonies uh, that were to be observed by those who were give birth to children. And the first ceremony that Jesus observes is found in verse 21. That is, Jesus observes the law of circumcision, or at least his parents observe it, but Jesus is the one that is observing the law, that he is being circumcised. Look at verse 21 with me as we look at the first verse. And when eight days had passed, that is, eight days after his birth, before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The rite or the, uh, the uh, ceremony of circumcision was given in Genesis seventeen twelve, all the way back in Genesis. It was given to Abraham as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that God made to Abraham that every male child of Abraham's descendants, even of Abraham's household, his, his, his servants as well, were to be circumcised on that eighth day. And it would be a sign that they identify with the Abrahamic covenant. To not be circumcised, in fact, would be practically equal to basically uh, denying the faith. One would be cut off from the, from the nation, the religious worship and practice of the nation. It was something to be very derogatory, even by the New Testament, to be someone who's uncircumcised. It's called him an unbeliever. 
Now, it was also customary at the, on the eighth day where they, the child would be circumcised that the child would be named. We think about John was named on his eighth day as well. And what did Mary and Joseph do here? They named their child Jesus. This is a sign, really, of Mary and Joseph's faith. The angel had told Joseph, the angel had told Mary as well on two separate occasions that they would have a son and they would name his son, their son Jesus. Jesus. And by naming him Jesus, they show that they believe the angel, but they also shows their faith because Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. Any Joshua's here? Yeah. Joshua, I know. And I feel good about that. It's a good name. You know what Joshua means? It means the Lord is salvation. The Lord is salvation. You know, and, and by naming their son Jesus, Mary and Joseph were acknowledging this, what the truth, what the angels revealed, but what they came, would come to know is that this child that was born, Jesus, who is circumcised on this eighth day in identification with the, the descendants of Abraham, he is the one who provides salvation. He is the Lord who is salvation. His circumcision affirmed that he is God's provision of salvation for the nation of Israel. Now, that's circumcision. There's a second ceremony they observes. That's in verse 22. And it's the law of purification. The law of purification in verse 22. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, this, past, this uh, ceremony of purification comes from Leviticus chapter 12. Now, in Leviticus 12, is a, the whole chapter is given to the, the ceremony that a woman was to observe when she gives birth. Uh, she, she, when she gives birth to a son, she becomes ceremonially unclean for 40 days, where she then has to go undergoes purification. In fact, all the ceremonial laws are, 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 were to teach Israel about how the, the need for, to be cleansed, because there are times where they'd be ceremonially unclean. And in fact, for all Israel, whenever they had any bodily discharge, it, was, it would make them unclean. And so definitely with pregnancy, there's bodily fluids as well. They discharge in there. So she's unclean for a period of 40 days. She's not allowed to, uh, to enter into the, the temple for those days. She's, she's ceremonially unclean. But there's after 40 days, after the days of her purification completed, then she's able to go. And she's, the first place she has to go is to the temple, where there she has to offer a burnt offering as well as a sin offering. A lamb as a burnt offering or, and a pigeon or turtle dove as a, as a sin offering. However, the law further stipulates that, according to Leviticus 12 to 8, that if she cannot afford a lamb, basically if they're poor, then she shall take two turtle doves or two young pigeons. What does Mary and Joseph offer? Verse 24. And they had gone to present him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. And so what it reveals to us is that Joseph and Mary were, it just confirms to us that they were, they were not a rich family. They were of, of less mean, lesser means. Maybe they were, I don't know if they were like complete poverty, but they were of lesser means. They were a poorer family. They could not afford a lamb that would be uh, normally used. And so they offered two turtle doves or two pigeons. See, the law of purification reminded the Israelites that all according to David, are brought forth in iniquity and conceived in sin. He's all, everyone is born with a sinful nature. Now, this is not to say that Jesus was born with a sinful nature. He is the perfect son of God. He was tempted in all ways such as us, but without sin, okay? He did not sin ever. But by, 
by, by observing the ceremony of purification, although he was sinless, his observation was an identification with the people whom he would die. It was a foreshadowing that he would come to pay the sacrifice for sins. And the third ceremony that Jesus observed found in the latter half of verse 22 into verse 23. And this is the primary reason that they're kind of coming. And that is, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. And this is the ceremony, this is the ceremony of, the, of the dedication of the firstborn son, or sometimes called the presentation of the firstborn son. Uh, verse 23 continues, as is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. This uh, comes to us, this, uh, verse 23 is a quote from Exodus 13.2. And Exodus 13 follows right after that period, of the, that uh, series of stories about the plagues in Egypt where they were slayed and God allowed Moses to bring various plagues. But the final plague was the death of every firstborn throughout the land of Egypt. Remember that? But what did the Israelites do? When they obeyed God's instructions, they painted the doorposts of their house with the blood of a one-year-old Passover lamb. God passed over. God delivered. He spared every firstborn son of the families of Israel that placed the blood on the, the, the doorposts of their homes. And ever since then, from that point on, every firstborn son, according to God, belonged to him. They were set apart for him. They were, they were consecrated for him. They were to be devoted to the Lord, devoted to his service, because he spared them when they put his trust in him. But in place of those firstborn sons, God eventually took one of the tribes of Israel. He didn't take all the firstborn sons to serve He chose the tribe of Levi, remember? And so the tribe of Levi and all their descendants became the priests and the servants in the temple. However, still, every firstborn son had to be redeemed. Uh, according to Numbers 3, uh, chapter 3, verse 47, the redemption price that they would have to pay was five shekels. So every time firstborn son was, was born, he would have to be brought to the temple where he would be dedicated to the Lord, presented to the Lord, and the five shekel fee paid to redeem him so that a Levite might serve in his place. So when Jesus was presented to the Lord here, it's just again a, a visible picture that he would be a holy servant Lord. Not that he needed a replacement, he would be the replacement. He would be the one who would redeem Israel. He came to fulfill his father's plan of salvation. So we see then that from Jesus, from his birth, he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled God's Mosaic law. And it's, it's hard not to miss the emphasis on, on these ceremonies being done here. This time in, uh, in verse 22, 23, 24, 27, 39, and 39, five times, there's this reference to according to the law, according to the law of Moses, according to Moses, according to the, to the, to some, to, uh, the scripture. This is important. This is important. This is an emphasis in this part of the text. Because in the early church, remember this was written to Theophilus. Theophilus was a, a, probably a, a Gentile God-fearer. That is, he was someone who was, though he was a Gentile, he observed the Jewish faith. And then, though, when Christ, after Christ was do, died and rose from the grave, he became a follower of Christ. He was taught about more about Christ. But in that early church, as he was watching, he had moved from, uh, to, to follow the Messiah, to be, to be a Christian. 
Who were the number one opponents of the early church? Not Gentiles, but it was the Jewish religious leaders. This is like all the pastors and elders basically opposing Jesus. It is a very strong kind of a of weight behind them. And people who are Gentiles who probably have very little background and they're wondering, did we follow the wrong way? Were we deceived? Have we joined a cult? You know? And so the, one of the great early, uh, one of the most common accusations against the early church was that the church basically doesn't even observe the law. They break the law. They abolish the law. They don't follow the law of Moses anymore. It's not, they, they tell people to ignore it. But by showing how Jesus fulfilled the law of Moses, even as early as his infancy, but Luke's going to show it throughout his life, Luke reminds Theophilus that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's law. That Jesus did not come to abolish the law, as we, uh, he'll say, speak in Matthew 5. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And Jesus came to fulfill the law in its totality. Everything that the law demanded, Jesus came and fulfilled. And yes, the law of Moses is no longer applicable to us today in in the sense that its demands for Israel are now demands of us. Because what the law pointed to, the need for covenant keeping, the need for cleansing, the need for consecration, where none of those things could ever be filled by any Israelite, nor could be fulfilled by any Gentile. But all of it were fulfilled in Jesus, the Christ, who once for all fulfilled it, so that though he came as one born under the law, Galatians 4.4, 4, so that he may redeem those who are under the law. That when we set free from the law, a law of death, to a law of spirit. And so what we could not do in our sinful nature, Jesus did when he fulfilled the law. His perfect righteousness, and because he obeyed the law, his perfect righteousness is credited to our spiritual accounts when we believe upon him. So when God looks at us, he does not see our deeds. Our deeds are filthy. He sees Jesus' deeds. He says, this is righteousness. This is, and he welcomes and he adopts us in his family. Jesus' dedication to the temple teaches us how Jesus came to fulfill the law. But there's a second truth about Jesus that we learn here, and that is in verse 25 to 35, that Jesus came to fulfill the Lord's salvation. Before we look at what's, uh, and and this becomes the testimony of Simeon, but before we look at what he says, Luke gives us the background of Simeon. It's almost like he wants to show us the credibility of this one who's about to testify of Jesus. The credibility of witnesses are, are important. We want to show that this one has some knowledge of what he's talking about. So, Luke describes for us Simeon's righteousness in verses 25-28. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to carry out for him the custom of the law. Then he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, so there's a couple of things we see about Simeon here in this passage. But the, the clearest thing of all is that Simeon, it says here, was righteous and devout. So he was a godly man, okay? There's something about godly men that are just, and godly women as well. And I appreciate what Chris said about the godly men and women of this church and some of the, the older saints who have just been an influence upon the church. You, you open your mouths, you teach us, but you, you live your lives 
and you teach us. There's a God, he's a godly man, a godly saint. But he was also a man of faith. He was looking for the consolation of Israel. I just thought about it when I was singing the song, one of the early hymns today, the consolation. You know, we use the consolation almost like as, oh, that's second prize. That's the prize for the loser. You didn't win, so you get a consolation prize. That's how I thought of it when I was growing up, at least when I watched the game shows. But the word consolation can also be translated as comfort. In fact, it, is, it means comfort. It, yes, it's given us constantly because it's to comfort those who lost. But the word here is, is it means that this, he was, this uh, Simeon was looking for the comfort of Israel. The term is an allusion to Old Testament promises of deliverance. The most familiar is Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, O oh, comfort my people, says your God. See, God promised comfort, consolation, encouragement to his nation through the promised Messiah in Isaiah. And Simeon believed God's promise, and that's why he was continually looking for God's promise. He was waiting for God's deliverer. Lastly, we read that Simeon here was a spirit-filled man. So he was a, and this is, keep in mind, this was before believers were just filled with the spirit. This is, he's an Old Testament saint. But it says here that he was a, he was, he was a spirit-filled man. The, The Holy Spirit was upon him. The tense of the verb here tells us this was not just a one-time thing. This was a continually happening regularly throughout his life. This man was a, such a godly man. He wasn't just one-time spirit-filled, but he was continually in the past being spirit-filled, being, uh, having the spirit dwell within him. The dwelling of the spirit enables him for special tasks. In this case, the Holy Spirit supernaturally reveals to him that he would not die before seeing the Messiah. Can you imagine that promise? The Holy Spirit tells him, you will not die before you see the Messiah. To see the Messiah, how many of us would love to see the Christ? Right? I would love to see Jesus. Okay, yeah. I mean, I know oh, that's, we're supposed to raise our hands now. But the fact is, we all would love to see Jesus. The more you, love, the more you get to know Jesus, the more you'll want to see him. Guarantee it. I used to, when I was a young man, I was younger, I said, oh, you know, I, I think I, I don't know if I want Jesus to come back because I, I, I will love the things of the world. And as you get older, you realize Things in the world are temporary, and you know more of Jesus. You, you just love him more. You want to see him more. And the fact is, we have to die to see Jesus. But Simeon isn't going to die until he sees Jesus. That's kind of cool. It's like, it's like this, is, uh, this is something that God promised to him by supernatural revelation. And so on this particular day of Jesus' dedication, the Spirit of God works in Simeon, leads him to, to go to the temple leads him basically then to start looking. Can you imagine all the new parents that are bringing in the nation, that are bringing their son uh, uh, to dedicate at the temple? Which one is it, you know? It's kind of like Samuel looking for, which of the sons of Jesse is it? Oh, oh, look at that fine-looking couple. They're so nicely dressed. I like how they match. They must, their child must be the, the Messiah. Oh, look at that couple. Oh, they look so godly. Oh, oh, they must be it. Oh, look at that couple. They're, ooh, they're well off. Uh, they look very regal. Oh, I, I think I know them. They're like, there's some priestly line. Maybe it's them. You know, but God, through the Holy Spirit, caused him to look upon this ordinary couple here. A poor couple. They're not even from the city. They're from the hit country. They're from Galilee. Here they are walking in quietly, humbly with their child. And God supernaturally reveals to Simeon that this child is the Messiah. 
And he comes up to, them, to, to Mary and Joseph, and he takes them. He's not a priest, so he, he's not the one who's going to dedicate, but he, he comes up anyways. And he takes the child from them in his arms. And then he begins to bless the Lord, to praise God. And that's when we see this, Simeon's revelation, what he says about this child. Here is the testimony that Simeon gives about the significance of this child. Verse, 23, verse 29 to 32. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. This is Simeon's prayer and hymn of praise to God. And it basically begins with saying, Oh, Lord, now I can die in peace. You know, Lord, I can die in peace. You know, there, there are times in our life when something you look forward to all your life, and then when it happens, you say, Lord, I can die in peace now. Some of it's uh, maybe someone, maybe uh, uh, salvation of a loved one you've been praying for all your life. They come to the Lord, and all of a sudden, he says, oh, Lord, I praise God. Now I can really die in peace. The one I've been praying for all these years has come to know the Lord. But for Simeon, he says, now I can die in peace. Why? Because my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. He's looking at this little child, and he says, my eyes have seen your salvation. Simeon recognized the child as the Lord's salvation. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise and plan of salvation. But what makes, and what makes the salvation stand out is that he's, he recognizes this is not a, just a salvation limited to only to Israel, but it's a salvation that extends to Gentiles as well. When the angel announced the good news to the shepherds, they announced, the angel announced good news of great joy, which will be for all the people, singular. That was a technical reference to the nation of Israel. But here... And we look at what this salvation, it's for eyes of senior salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Actually, you can say all the peoples. Plural. This is not just one nation. This is all the nations, all the peoples, all the languages of the world. God has prepared his salvation in the presence of. Now, what this is saying is that basically God has been designed and has been sovereignly, providentially working out the fulfillment of his promise and plan of salvation before all the nations of the earth, in the plain sight of everyone. Just think back to Old Testament history, the number of nations that the Lord worked through to bring about the fulfillment of his promises to save. You can even go back all the way to to Genesis. Think about the table of nations. But you can start with Abraham. You think about nations like Mesopotamia when they go down to Jacob and he goes down to, to, to Egypt. You can think about when they get into captivity and they're in Assyria and Babylonia or Persia when they brought back uh, to the land. You can think about the, the conquest of the Greek, from Greece and Rome. And God had prepared his salvation in and through all those nations, mighty nations, but God was in control. And what's more, though, he doesn't just use all of them. His salvation is designed for all of them. It's for Gentiles and Jews alike. Verse 32 is a quote from Isaiah 49, verse 6, that Jesus, or the Messiah, when he comes, would be a light for the Gentiles because it's too small a thing to save just the people of Israel. God's grace and God's love is too great to be limited just to a small, tiny nation of Israel. It extends to the all nations. It extends to people in this room. 
of people around the world. Here we see the first promise of a Gentile salvation in the Gospel of Luke. But we also see the hint of, the first hint of Jewish opposition. That Jesus, though he brings salvation for Jews and Gentiles, he's actually going to face a bit of opposition. Verse 33 to 35. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary's mother, Behold, this child is appointed for all the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus is basically coming, and he, when he, though he comes and he's the savior, he's the deliverer, but he's going to end up dividing the nation. The nation's going to be split over who Jesus is. There will be those who reject him, who oppose him, and their future, and they will find that they will fall. And then there will be those who receive Jesus, and they will rise. In fact, the first time we see people opposing Jesus is in fact in chapter 4, verse 28 and 29. In his own hometown, in his own town, Nazareth, these are people, his uncles and aunties, you know? His cousins, people he kind of grew up with, his friends. And they're, here he is reading, and they're all amazed. And then he says, you know, he starts explaining it to them of that he's the Messiah. And then what they do, they, they're filled with rage, and they take him out to the cliff. They want to throw him out over the cliff. The opposition that Jesus was making. Because why would they do that? Because at the end of verse 35, it says, to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. What Jesus does, when, Jesus, when you meet Jesus, you learn about who he is. But how you respond to Jesus Reveals who you are in your heart. Reveals what God, what is in your heart. Because when you reject Jesus, it shows that hey, I, I don't need Jesus. I'm not a sinner that needs saving. I'm not going to hell. I'm a good person. I don't believe in that. I don't need help. I'm good enough without God. I'm self sufficient. It shows what's in my heart when I reject Jesus. But when I receive Jesus. What does it say about what's in our heart? It says, Lord, you know I'm a sinner. I stand up here in the pulpit and preach to your people every week, but I'm still a sinner in need of forgiveness. I'm still a sinner that needs of sanctification. I need the salvation that, is, that you are continually working in my life in Christ. I need it when I'm at home. I need it when I'm at church. I need it when I go out to work. I go out to the marketplace. I need it when I'm driving, Yes. I need Jesus for all the different areas and elements of my life. Do you need Jesus? How do you respond to Jesus? Reveals what's in your heart. Will you be one who submits to him, acknowledges that you are a sinner in need of of his salvation, or will you be self-righteous, self-sufficient? Which one are you? For the word of God tells us who Jesus is. Now, Simeon gives his testimony in verses 36 to 40, a second person comes and gives a different, another testimony. And that's this person named Anna. Or in the Hebrew, it would be Hannah. Jesus, and we learn in this, uh, these final verses that Jesus came to fulfill those looking for redemption. He came to answer, be the answer for those who are looking for redemption, for salvation. Anna's character is, we're introduced in verse 36 to 37. She's no, you know, crazy or anything. She's not someone who's ungodly. She, her testimony is, is, is credible because she is also a godly woman. Look at verse 36 and 37. And there was a prophetess. So she was a woman who God would give revelation through. 
Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. A lot of commentators would just look at that and say, well, you know, that means nothing. It's just superfluous. But no, you don't understand. After the return from Babylon, a lot of people lost track of who they were, of what tribe they belonged to. You know, and, and to, they, they didn't know. So they, if they, even if they said they were of the priestly line, they were not allowed to serve in the temple because they had lost the record of it. But here, this woman, she is godly. You know, she is aware of her tribal ancestry. She knows that she's a daughter of Phanuel. Or she, has, she probably has evidence or record of it that she is of the tribe of Asher. What's more, we find that she was advanced in years, had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. So she was an elderly woman, an older woman. But she was a widow, a very early widow. She had been married, probably in those days, married when they were teens. She had been married. She was widowed seven years. After. So she was widowed probably around her 20s, early 20s even, possibly. But then she didn't remarry. She could have. But as she remained as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. And so she, she remained a widow in the temple. She did not get married. She served the Lord for, until she was 84. It's possible, by the way, to also interpret as that she served the Lord as a widow for 84 years. So 84 then adding to her present age. She could have been 100, as some commentators believe. So, but whether she's 84 or whether she's 100-something, nevertheless, she is an she has an, was an elderly woman. And the point of this is that through all those years as a widow, what did she devote her time to? She was devoted her time to praying in the temple. She never left the temple. She served, the, uh, by the way, Leonard left her was probably hyperbole. Because uh, there was, as far as we know, there was no rooms in the temple that women could, could live in. The, the, the temple service was limited to only the priests, and they could live there when they were serving in their priesthood. But, but she was there so often, Luke describes, or the record describes, that she never left the temple. She was there morning and night, night and day. Very Hebraic, night and day, that way. And what did she do? She did she there, oh, socialize? Oh, how you doing? What's up, what's up with the grandkids? Oh, what's going on? What's the latest news in Rome? No, she was night and day with fastings and prayers. She was going without food to pray. What was she praying for? She was probably praying for the nation. She was looking for the redemption of Israel. She was a godly woman. And so this was a widow prophetess who prayed continually in the temple. She's a mature godly woman. She's credible in what she says. And what does she say of, of, this, of the Savior? Though we do not have a direct quote from her, we have a description of how she responds. In verse 38, Anna's response. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Two things that does at the very moment, is it tells us she comes up. So it's the same moment that Simeon's speaking his words. She responds, number one, with thanksgiving. She gives thanks to God, and then she responds with testimony. Thanksgiving and testimony. She, tes- she praises God for this child, and then she testifies to others of this child. And what does she testify? She was, speaks of Jesus to all who are looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. And we can conclude that what she gives thanks for is what she tells others. She's probably telling people, if you're looking for the redemption of Jerusalem... If you're looking for the salvation 
promise to the nation of Israel, then it is found right here in this child. This child is the Lord's salvation. This is the one that will redeem us, that will pay the penalty, the price to set us free. This one, and she probably doesn't even have any full, the full extent of what, how he would pay that debt. But she knows, because of her, her close walk with God, that, and she's a prophetess, that she says, this is the one in whom all who are looking for redemption can be fulfilled in this one. The verb uh, looking here is, this, is a significant word. It stands out. It's a, it's a word that means to wait for, to expect. It pictures the, the patient anticipation for something hoped for. Anna had waited all her life, prayed all her life, devoted all her life. For what? To look for the redemption of Jerusalem. She had served the Lord night and day in the temple, praying for this to come about. And in the child Jesus, she finds the fulfillment of that redemption. As we kind of come to an end, just kind of throw out some application, some application truths for us. First of all, the one thing I want to draw for all of us here, and especially if you're here, you don't know yet, you have not yet believed in Jesus, that Jesus is the answer to you, to those of you who are looking for redemption. If you're looking for redemption, maybe, you know, we're all looking for something in life. Especially when we're young, we get philosophical, we start looking for the, the meaning of life. We're looking for something that will make my life meaningful, fulfilled, purposeful. We think it's going to be this or that. We think it's going to be stuff. We think it's going to be education. We think it's going to be our friends. We're looking for all these things. We try to fulfill them. And do we find it in them? No, we don't. We don't, do we? They may temporarily find, but eventually along the way, God, who's working our lives, shows us that what we're looking for is a, re- re- is a relationship with our creator, that there is a God who made us, testified by everything that we see in this world. And we find, we, we get our hands in a Bible somehow. We enter into a church and someone's preaching the gospel to us week in and week out. And we hear that what you're looking for is Jesus. If you're looking for a relation with your creator, it is found and fulfilled in this child that is described in this gospel. This child who had grew up, this child of Jesus of Nazareth, this child who is Jesus the Christ. This child who is Jesus, the son of the Almighty. You need to look no further. All you are looking for something, if you're not looking for Jesus, you need to look for Jesus. That's what you're looking for. It's not found in everything else. And yes, maybe you, you say, I've been looking, I've been searching, but I haven't found it. Look into his word. Prayerfully ask. Jesus says, seek and ye shall find. Seek and ye shall find. Ask and it will be given to you. Knock, the door will be opened to you. That's a, so Jesus is the answer to what you're looking for, the fulfillment of that. But uh, secondly, I think we can relate to the example of elderly Anna as well as elderly Simeon. For many as older saints who have put our trust in Christ some years ago, you, know, I can, you probably can't even remember back then to those years. It's been that long. And there's a sense when you're early on, you're looking for, you kind of think of salvation and say, yeah, I'm gonna, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. And it's kind of a faraway thing. Uh, in fact, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, I don't think we quite get a sense of it until we get older. 
some of us have that sense very clearly. That mortality, when our mortality strikes, we realize that we're going to die. And we begin realizing this redemption is not just about so that I can live a godly life. It is part of that, the sanctification that takes place. It's not just so that my sins are forgiven. That, that is that, too. But there is also a redemption. A, a redemption a, of not just my soul, but of my whole being, of my body. Because as the years pass on, we start seeing our body decay. We start really seeing not only sin's effect in our soul, but we actually start seeing sin's effect on our body. The corruption of the body, the decay of the body. And every year, we, we are, we're seeing more and more of our, our loved ones of the body uh, going into glory. And we see them decay. And it's hard to watch. And when that time comes, we, we treasure the gospel that much more. Because we know in the gospel, we have a redemption of our body as well. The final removal of the presence of sin from our bodies. Yes, we're gonna, our souls will go up to heaven and our bodies will be in the grave. But when Jesus returns one day, he'll fulfill that promise to glorify our bodies. To remove sin from this, the curse of sin from this body. So that my body, my soul will be reunited, glorified with Jesus for eternity. And that glorification, that redemption of our body is found in Jesus too. You know, I've been keeping a small list on my uh, computer about things, truths to basically to remember as I prepare to die. The thoughts to prepare me for dying. And you know, when I, as, if I could summarize them all, I could summarize them all with Jesus. Different truths about Jesus taught, different truths that people, as they relate with Jesus, each one, as they think about death and how they view death, but when it comes down to it, it's all about, if I could, I'm going to underline it eventually one day, maybe I'm just going to call a book and it's going to be titled Jesus. What you need before you, can die, before you die. And uh, he is the answer, the fulfillment for those looking for redemption. Well, we conclude with this. The passage concludes with uh, 30, verse 39 and 40. I won't, won't uh, expose it verse 39 and 40, but I'll read it to you. It's kind of an epilogue here. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee. That's where Jesus would grow up in Galilee, in Naz- to their own city of Nazareth. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. So there Jesus would grow for the next 30 years, 30-some years, grow in strength, wisdom, and the grace of God. Until the beginning of his ministry. But what this passage teaches us and confirms for us is that Jesus is the Lord's salvation. The testimony of Simeon, the testimony of Adam point to the fact these godly individuals, uh, prophets and prophetesses, are, point to the fact that who Jesus is. Shepherds and saints testified that he is the Lord's salvation. Heaven and earth testified that he is the Lord's salvation. Young and old testified that he is the Lord's salvation. Male and female testified that he is the Lord's salvation. They have seen and they have testified. Brothers and sisters out here, what do you testify of Jesus? Is he the Lord's provision of salvation? Is that your recognition in your life? Do you, you who have not presented with who Jesus is, is that your faith? And, you can, and do you know that for certain? Because you have heard it in God's word. Find assurance here in that. Have you seen it with the eyes of faith yet? And brother and sister, if you've seen this, if you've seen the Lord's salvation, then like, like Anna, we should give thanks. 
but we should also be encouraged to testify. There's so many people still in our world who need and do not yet know Jesus. May God give us in 2019 more open doors, more opportunities to use our words and our deeds and our actions in our life to give testimony of who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and your truths. We entrust, uh, we entrust your, the, the results of the preaching of your word to you. Father, may your spirit move among us, cause us to hear exactly what we need to hear. Help us to grow in our love for Jesus, our appreciation for your salvation. And may you especially work in the hearts of those who are still seeking, still uncertain. Maybe they're looking for something, but they don't know what they're looking for. Lord, may you today reveal to them that what they are looking for, what they need, is Jesus, your salvation. And I pray, Father, that you might use some of us here in this church to lead these individuals to the saving knowledge of Christ today. We thank you, Father, for the saints here. We thank you, Father, for each one gathered as with us this end of the year. Pray that you would send us forth as your people into your world so that we might testify of who Jesus is. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.